Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Amazing grace. That's why we exist right now. It's why we have the promise of heaven. It's why we have the hope of actually living out the purposes for which God created us. It's why we're gathered here today to worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. And it's why every fourth Sunday we also have the opportunity for a tangible expression of that as we come around what's called communion or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And so we invite each of you here in just a few moments to come to any one of three stations. Doesn't really matter which one you come to. We'd recommend actually just picking the shortest line. Um, and you're going to get the communion cups that are prepackaged. A few more weeks, uh, perhaps, of doing it this way to just continue to be cautious and, and safe. I promise you, you won't have to eat these nasty things too much longer. Uh, but these are, these are, they've just been a great blessing to us because they allow us a way to protect each other, but also uh, to share in the body and the blood of the Lord. And this is rooted all the way back in history to 2,000 years ago when Jesus gathered with his disciples and he took the bread of the Passover and he tore it. And having passed it out to them, he said, take and eat. This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we remember in that moment that it was a human sacrifice. It was someone who simply, he didn't merely stand on the precipice of heaven and preach a sermon of condemnation, though certainly he would have been in his rights to have done that. He wrapped himself in human flesh. He came to this earth. He, he lived among us. He incarnated himself among us. He suffered with us and, and through that developed empathy and sympathy for those that he was coming ultimately to give his life for. And he did what no other human being had ever been able to do. He lived as a human being in absolute perfection. That is what we remember when we partake of the body of the Lord. And then scripture says the Lord passed the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood and it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And we remember that there's a reason that that perfect humanity had to be torn, had to be killed because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so our hope in the past uh, is anchored to that moment in history, and it is something that causes us also to look forward. Paul put it this way, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Our elders are going to man these stations. I'm going to be down at this one. And as God leads, you come, you take that cup, you take it back to your seat. And as the Lord leads, as the Spirit leads you, consume it. Um, and we will, we will look forward to doing this together. Uh, around the Lord's table. This is for those who have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. And so if that's not something you've done yet, we would just ask you to stay seated. Trust me, nobody's going to be looking at you. We're all too busy at this moment examining the contents of our own hearts. If you're a parent and you brought your kid today, I'm, I'm so glad that you did. If they believe, please bring them. If they have not, be a good mom, be a good dad, hold them back. But on your way back to the seat, tell them what this story means and have this opportunity, this prime opportunity to lead your children 
to Jesus and to be able to say what I'm about to say now to anybody watching or anybody who's in this room who doesn't know Christ. The facts remain. His body was broken. His blood was spilled for you so that all who desire eternal life can have it simply by coming, turning from their sins, and putting their faith in him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you again for the body and blood of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that uh, the centrality of the cross Uh, we we thank you, Father, for the joy that that brings us, for the fulfillment in life that is available to us through this. And Lord, as we get up from our seats in just a moment and we come forward to receive this time together, I ask you in the name of Jesus to just bless our hearts, confirm those of us who know you in the joy of salvation, and may someone come to know you today just through this very simple, tangible expression. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, and as the Lord leads, come and get your communion supplies, bring them back, and let's gather around the Lord's table together. church. Are you here on campus? Are you watching from home? Is this your first time with us? Have you been with us a while? Would you like to meet some new friends? We reach all of you in different ways and that can make things seem complicated. But there is one place where everything comes together. Join us at connect2covenant.com. Go ahead, you can do it right now. When you get there, introduce yourself. Even if you've been with us for years, connect with us there. 
and let us know all that God has been doing in your life and how we can pray for you. Let us know if you'd like to serve, join a group, or just get to know our church family better. So from wherever you have joined us today, thanks so much for coming, and we look forward to getting to know you. Anytime you introduce a series entitled Deep Wounds, you know that you know, during a lot of those weeks, you, you may leave with a sense of heaviness, that there's some, some burden, really, that needs to be unloaded. There's a lot of pain in this sort of thing. It is true that wherever two or more are gathered, uh, and they are sinners, sooner or later, actually, everybody gets hurt. Isn't that true? And I know the last couple of weeks have been kind of heavy. They've left us with some heavy but necessary subjects about how to deal with the hurt and the pain. We've dealt with issues like, well, the worst form of wounding. What do you do when a leader, someone in my position, someone in the role of a pastor, a deacon, a, a small group leader, someone that you look up to and that you uh, are, are really depending on in some ways for your own spiritual growth, and rather than, than leverage their power, their authority for your own good, they use it as a means of abusing you. How do you react to that? How should the church respond to that? Are there ways that the church can create the kind of environment that would actually repel those kinds of men and women so that they never find a place uh, in a significant role of leadership? Then last week we talked about the irreparable damage at the congregational level as well as the leadership level that can occur when people are gossiping, when people are slandering, when people are talking with others in ways that really don't lead to a solution or reconciliation, but simply more hurt, more damage, false ideas get out. When formerly churched people, interestingly enough, are asked, why did you leave the church? These are the two things that often are at the top of their list of responses. And I think the reason would probably be obvious, wouldn't you? I mean, if you can't trust the leaders to lead with your best interest in mind, if you can't trust the people in your small group or the wider body of Christ to deal with struggles, with other kinds of things that you're dealing with in a way that's not malicious towards you or doesn't exploit you in some way, then you're never really going to open up, are you? There's never really going to be the kind of transparency that would make us be the kind of body that, that the Lord wants us to be, a safe place. You're not going to bring your struggles. You're not going to be honest about where you fail. And at the heart of all of that, the thing that leads both to abuse uh, by leaders, gossip, and other kinds of toxic environment in faith communities, at the root of it is, is the same thing. It's something that we call judgmentalism. Harsh judgment that has kept us from being with each other. 87% of unchurched people in their 20s said the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Now, you got to ask yourself why so that you can be fair with the nuance behind that and don't just issue all kinds of unrighteous judgments yourself. For one thing, Christianity actually, if you're going to practice it faithfully, if you're going to follow Jesus faithfully, believe it or not, you are going to issue judgments. It's going to happen. People who say Christians don't judge are people who have never read the Bible. Of course, Christians make judgment calls. The issue really is what areas are there in which we are called to judge? And, and the standard is this. 
all of us, you, me, everybody that's ever lived or ever will live, are one day going to be judged in light of God's holiness. And we believe on the basis of God's word, there's an absolute moral standard that everyone should be held to. And when we make judgments as a family of faith, we do so in light of that standard, in light of the word of God. Now, here's the other side of that coin that we have to be very careful with, even as we confidently assert that value judgment. We don't always see those values clearly, do we? We don't always, sometimes it's our own lived experience, limited, that's not in reaction to other people who have a different lived experience. Experience doesn't determine truth, but it will, in community, help us find the truth. Oftentimes, that, that's what happens. And so, rather than, than do that, we forget what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. In other words, the result of the sin curse on my mind we all know, if you've been an adult longer than 15 minutes, that the sin curse has an effect on your body. Some of you are diabetic. Some of you have heart conditions, have to see a cardiologist on a regular basis. Some of you are cancer survivors. Some of you had a troubled pregnancy. There's, a, there's all kinds of things in our background. Some of you wear corrective lenses. Some of you wear hearing aids. All of that is the result of a fallen world. You may or may not have contributed personally to some of that. But at the end of the day, we live in a fallen world. Our bodies are going to suffer to some extent from that. And so that's the effect of sin on the physical body. But we forget that sometimes sin affects the mind also. I sometimes forget things. You sometimes go to the mall and you go out into the parking lot and realize only then that you have no idea where you parked your car. That happens. There are times when dark things enter your mind. Sometimes even about your spouse, amen? And you're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? You realize in that moment, there's something not quite right with my brain. And if you, if you understand that, you'll also understand, you don't always, nor do I, see the truth with abundant clarity. We need community in order to see that. And when I forget that, when I forget that I need the other pastors and elders here to hold me accountable, that sometimes I even need my brothers and sisters in Christ to speak their lived experiences to me, not because those things determine truth, but because they make me a better pastor. They help me to apply things more faithfully. But if I forget that, you know what happens? I become a hard person to live with, and so do you. And that really is, is the point of the text that we're going to look at this morning. The key to this is understanding some things are essential, some things are not essential. We use this kind of language among the pastors at Covenant all the time. We say some issues are closed-handed issues, other issues are open-handed issues. Closed-handed are issues that define orthodoxy and right behavior and where God's Word has clearly spoken. There's no room for negotiation. God has spoken Period. So, you know, in this hand would be something like the historic, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Closed-handed issue. Non-negotiable if you're going to follow Jesus. Not only can you not go to heaven if you don't believe that, Christianity doesn't exist without it. Closed-handed. But then there's some other things. Like, for example, when is Jesus coming back and how? And what is the proper order for that? And how's that going to all kind of meet out and happen? I'm kind of looking forward to a summer series called The Return of the King. And we're going to be moving systematically through all of those things. It should pique some of your interest. But, it, but some of you, I'm going to be as objective as I can to kind of give you the broad array of viewpoints when it's appropriate to do so. And, and then I'll tell you what I think because I'm your pastor. You deserve to know that. And at the end of some of those messages, some of you are going to go, gosh, pastor, I love you, but I'm not sure I agree with your take on that. This is what I was raised to believe, and I've gone back and examined it. And I think, and the issue is, that's okay. 
that's okay. You know why? Because although this, the return of Jesus is in the closed hand, the how and the why and the in what order, all that's on the open hand. Same thing is true with regard to behavior. Some things are closed-handed. Addiction, abuse, sexual immorality. The, but then there's other things that are, that are up to the conscience, right? What should be, like, like, what's in the movies that I watch? What should be the appropriate content of something like that? Where do I draw the line for me if you've got kids at home? Where do I draw the line for my family? Is it okay if I go out to dinner to have a beer or a glass of wine? I, my kids are getting school age. How should I educate them? Should I trust them to the public school system? Or should I discover some other alternative that I think might be better for them? And I could go on and on and on because you know as well as I do, there's a thousand different things that people can fight about. Well, here in Romans 14, you get an inside look as to how we need to relate to each other when we differ on the non-essentials, all right? Most likely, the situation here involved Christians from a Jewish background, and so they have come to accept Jesus as Messiah, their brothers, their sisters. They've confessed salvation through faith alone, but they did not, at least as of yet, feel like that their freedom in Christ allowed them some of the things that their Gentile brothers and sisters did. Some of those things were really simple questions, like, what am I allowed to eat now? How should I view things like the Sabbath day? And they believed that violating some of those principles would be dishonoring to God. Most of them knew that heaven didn't hang in the balance. There wasn't some harsh judgment they should show to, to others to tell them that, well, you're not going to go to heaven unless you share the same diet plan that I do. But they also felt like they would bring more honor to Jesus if they abstained from these things. And so that group, Paul kind of shakes them out and collectively refers to them as the weaker brothers. All right. So when you see that in, in Romans 14 to the weak, that's what he's describing. He's not insulting them. He's just sort of categorizing them and saying, look, you have a very strong opinion. You believe your faith will be weakened if you do these things, if you participate in these things, you are the weaker brother. Then there's another group that says, I don't know what the big deal is. This all seems fine to me. I am free in Christ. The old covenant has been fulfilled in his death and resurrection. Those are the ones that Paul collectively refers to as the strong. And what he's doing in this passage is he's trying to prevent unnecessary hurt by bringing these two groups to understand each other. So here's the overall point. Personal convictions are important. It's how we think. We're going to come to formulate some of those. Each person needs to honor those convictions. So nothing I'm going to tell you over the next 30 minutes or so has anything to do with some kind of mushy middle compromise, what you very strongly believe. But here's Paul's overall point. The clear command, particularly when it comes to non-essentials, open-handed issues, is that we're supposed to be one in Christ and when we all come together, that happens only if our focus is primarily on the Lord and not our own personal preferences. And Paul gives some really sound instruction here on how we can achieve that kind of environment. He says, first of all, we need to understand each other under God. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So if you're stronger and you've got a brother who's got really strong opinions, guess what? He's still your brother. He's still your, she's still your sister. Welcome them. And then there's a caveat, but not to quarrel over opinions. All right. Don't bring them into the church because you think you're going to change them. Don't bring them into the church because you think you've got all the truth and somehow they need to wake up. All right. That, that's not it. You don't do this to quarrel over opinions. You also conversely don't do it to allow them space to be an on royal jack wagon, right? You don't do that. Don't allow them that kind of behavior. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This is to the, the, the Jews. He's saying God has welcomed. Remember Acts chapter 10? Remember Peter? He's got all these animals coming down off out of a, a sheet in heaven. It's a, it's, it's a great story. You ought to read it. And, and he, he goes, whoa, the, all kinds of animals, and some of which I can't even get in close proximity to because according to the law of Moses, I will become unclean. But then he hears this very confusing voice from heaven that says, kill it and eat it. What was that? That was the beginning of a lesson for Peter that those who eat these things now on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ, they're your brothers, they're your sisters. And though, so he welcomes Cornelius and his household as a result of that. Paul is, is building upon that and saying, those Gentiles, remember that story? Remember that story in the Bible? Those Gentile Christians are your brothers and sisters. Welcome them. And then he says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So there's this, the specific issue that, that Paul is dealing with here, but it's also described in, in general terms, and it's created a lot of discussion over the years. Likely this was not what we would call bona fide legalism. The technical definition of a legalist is someone who believes you must think like me, you must behave like me, you must conduct all of these behaviors, or you will not go to heaven. Well, and, and there may be people in front of me, people watching me who think that, you know, on some non-essential, some secondary issue. But in your mind, you're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not even sure those people are Christian if they behave like that, if they do this, or if they don't do that. Well, I got to tell you, I love you, but if that's you, Romans 14 is really not your text. Where you need to go is Galatians because you don't understand the gospel. And it might actually be you who doesn't know Jesus. This is what he's talking about. This isn't legalism. This isn't people judging one another at that level. Paul spoke in strong, condemning terms to people who did such things. This is people who are struggling within themselves and in their community with each other uh, over things like food laws. Like, can I eat shrimp now? Because that wasn't okay before. And it looks really tasty. I'm seeing my Gentile neighbor kind of woof it down, but I'm not so sure. I don't know that this is something that I can do. Sabbath day, we now worship on the first day of the week because ever since the resurrection of Jesus, that's just sort of been the reflexive response of his church. But, you know, God had a lot to say in the Hebrew scriptures about the last day of the week. And I'm just not too sure that even after the resurrection that that's something that, that I can chuck and that I can do away with. And so Paul identifies them here. The weak, I need to abstain from these activities. And the strong. No need for me to abstain because in Christ I am free. And so now you've probably already got the picture, right? That you have a church in which roughly half the people in this congregation are participating in activities that the other half find highly objectionable. And Paul is saying, here's what you need to do. You need to first seek to understand each other because this struggle, like any struggle, if it involves two or more people, there's always at least three opinions, right? Always. Uh, but the way this shook out, that, that this is kind of how it shook out. And Paul says, both of you have a role to play. To the weak, he says in verse 3, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And to the strong, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Some things, it, you just got to let them go. That's what he's saying. 
Early in my ministry, I experienced this. I was in central Kentucky in my late 20s, and Amy and I, it was just the two of us. I think she might have been pregnant with Sam at this point, but at this point, we had not, I don't think I'd ever changed a diaper in my life at this point. Uh, and so I knew zero about parenting, all right, nothing. But I had parents coming to their pastor, who was not a parent, trying to get my opinion about something that greatly concerned them. This was the late 1990s, and there had been this book come out that was written, that had originated in the mind of a single mom in Great Britain who all of a sudden was an overnight success, and they were talking about movie rights, and it all revolved around this character, this little child wizard named Harry Potter. And they, they said, Pastor, we're really concerned, and we want you to read this. We want to know what you think about this. Now, I have to be honest with you. Even after all these years, this was especially true back then, I, I just don't read a lot of fiction. I don't. My wife is the person who reads that, not my thing. I'll read half a dozen books a month or so, but I just don't typically read. Tom Clancy's the one exception. I love Clancy novels, but he's dead now, and I've read all of them. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know if there'll ever be another one. But, but childhood fantasy fiction... I just didn't like it all that much even when I was a kid. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it, but I didn't like it. And they're giving me this book. And y'all know the first volume, The Sorcerer's Stone? That sucker was thick. And I love to read, but not that. But on behalf of the people who were coming to me saying, Pastor, we want your opinion on this. And understandably, they wanted to be an informed opinion. I said, sure, I'll, I'll read it. I just slugged through that thing. Now, if you love Harry Potter, that's fine. I'll go ahead and fast forward to the end here. You are not in sin. It is not wrong. And look, it, yeah, well, there's witchcraft. and there's, Look, it's fantasy. It's fa if you've got a problem with that, you need to stop watching Disney movies. Okay? And, and so I read it, slugged through it, because they were concerned about a lot of stuff. And, I, and I, when I got done, I handed it back to them. I said, it's fine. And a couple of those parents were like, what do you mean it's fine? And I'm like, what do you mean, what do you mean? And they, you, you asked me to read it, give you an informed opinion on it. I don't like it, but that doesn't make it sinful. It bored me to tears, that doesn't make it wrong. It, you know what, if it encourages your children to read, read it to them, go for it, right? Here it is, right there. Well, well this is demonic. And then I got really angry. Not because they disagreed with me, but because apparently their minds were made up way beforehand and I could have been deer hunting. But instead, I was reading this stupid book. I said, well, you don't ever waste my time like that again. If you already got your mind made up, I don't want to read this stuff. But what was happening? Why were they so upset? Because different parents of different kids were coming to different conclusions and their kids were playing together. So that's why. So what do you do about that? What do you do? Well, let, let's plug Paul's formula in here, and, and let's find out what we do. What do you do? Well, to the weak, don't pass judgment. Don't assume that they're bad parents. You can have your conviction, but is this a little too close to the real thing for me? It, it's really not. Wicca is like, it, 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 it's just different. But, but if that's how you feel, go for it. Honor those convictions. Do it. Don't pass judgment on those who do it differently than you and assume that they're bad parents. To the strong, understand that the weak have strong convictions. Honor those convictions. When their kids come over, read Dr. Seuss. And yes, Dr. Seuss is fine. Just in case you were wondering about that. But that, that happens, doesn't it, right? And, and here's why you do it. Welcome those who are different than you don't fight them over this because the relationship is worth more than the argument. 
It's worth more than the argument. Later, as a denominational executive, I had a pastor blow a gasket because pastors behave like this too sometimes. And it was a network of churches that I was serving that had very strong, at least overwhelming, there was no official policy governing the churches on this, but very strong kind of overwhelming opinion on the consumption of alcohol. Uh, most of these guys and the churches really didn't believe that was appropriate for a follower of Jesus. And he just came out of his skull at, because another pastor in the network had done a Christmas video for his people inviting them to Christmas Eve services against the backdrop of a great big bay window in his home with snow falling in the background. But the problem was he was holding a glass of wine. Oh my gosh. I got certified mail over this. Certified. From people that I have spent time with and prayed with and prayed over their children and counseled with them and shared meals with them demanding that our network take a very, very strong position against all this. I remember one of those pastors, I mean, I'm like, I'm not doing this, man. And, and finally he said something, I'm like, all right, now you done gone too far. He said, well, I just thought maybe you stood for something. And so my response was, dude, I stand for a lot of things. I got a lot of strong opinions. Trust me, you do not want me enforcing those opinions at the level of policy because your church will be kicked out too. And then he got quiet. But this is what we do, right? We, we find something and we immediately. Now, some of you who are like, yeah, that was ridiculous. That was dumb. Let me, let me give you a background story on maybe why he got upset. Again, as I mentioned, this particular organization, it's, it's funded heavily by people who have very strong convictions about this. They would never tell you you're going to hell for having a beer, but they just, they just have strong convictions about it. And we had told our church planters, as a result, if we're going to fund you using money that these people have given, you're not going to drink alcohol while, you're, while those people are cashing your checks or, or writing your checks for you. We're just, we're just not going to do that. And one of them, in open defiance of that, had a huge, like hundreds of people come to a big fundraiser that included an open bar. This is why they got upset over it. Both of them forgot something that Paul is driving home here. The relationship and the common mission is far more important than the argument. Far more important. When I arrived here at Covenant, I had people just absolutely insistent. They're not here anymore. I didn't run them off. They chose to leave because I would not adopt, and, and in very, very strong terms, a particular view of the modern nation state of Israel. I'm like, well, I don't, you're asking me to lie. I don't believe that. I don't think you're necessarily wrong for believing it, but I I, I don't. Well, well let's, let's get into the Bible. I've been into the Bible. Trust me. I spent a few years studying the Bible. We're where we're at. This can either be an impasse or we can agree to disagree and we can make the mission more important than the argument. And they made the argument more important than the mission. I had others a couple of years later just get fighting mad with me because I would not allow voter guides during the 2016 election to be distributed here. Some of you are like, what are voter guides? Bless your heart. You are a blessed person to not know the answer to that question. But I'm going to tell you what it is. And they occur on the right and they occur on the left. And it's usually written by people who value their right wing or left wing ideology over and above the lordship of Jesus. And they're basically documents that tell you if you're a real follower of Jesus, this is who you'll vote for. I'm like, well, if that's how you feel, you need to read Galatians because you don't understand the gospel. This is not what the gospel is. See, there's all these, these things, particular views about the end of the age. I mean, Zig Ziglar once quipped, if two people agree on everything all of the time, one of them is unnecessary. And I don't know that I would go that far, but I would say this. Because we're human, we're fallen. 
Because we're human, we have different lived experiences. We're going to see things very differently. Sometimes we're going to do that. And, and, and when that difference of perspective concerns an issue that the Word of God has not spoken directly to, brothers and sisters, we have no right to play God with our brothers and sisters. We can't do it. We can't. So if you're a teetotaler, you know, on the alcohol thing, you're like, yeah, I just don't, I, I could never do that. I don't think Christians really ought to do that. I, mean, I, I don't even really, pastor, have Bible verses for it, but I mean, I, you know, some people grew up in an alcoholic home, and that's colored maybe in a justifiable way, because maybe there's something genetic there. Their, their opinion on the matter, that's fine. But if you've got a brother or sister in this congregation, and they have a beer while they're watching the game, or they want a glass of red with their ribeye at the Bavarian this afternoon, you know the best thing in the world you can do? You ready for this? This is deep. Bind your business. That's what you can do. Mind your business. Now, if you're somebody who likes to imbibe on occasion and you know that other family has really, really strong convictions about this and you go out to dinner, it really won't kill you to have ice water. You see how easy this is? You see, it, this is easy. And some of you are like, wow, if I want to drink, I need to drink. Listen, if, that, if, if it's really that strong with you, you may have a bigger problem with the bottle than you think you do. Some of this is so easy. Some of it, especially in, in recent months, might be a little bit harder. I have a feeling that somebody, even, even if there's no one right now who's hearing me or watching me, and you, you may hear this a little bit later, and there's somebody that you've been friends with maybe even for decades, but you haven't spoken to them since early November, and you know exactly why. You know why. I'm going to tell you, on the authority of these divinely inspired words, it's time to repent. And the way you repent is you share a meal together. And the vast majority of your conversation has nothing to do with what happened in November, what happened in January, any of those kind of things. But your conversation probably should begin like this. I owe you an apology. I treated issues that nobody's even going to remember 10 years from now as of greater importance than my relationship with my brother, my sister. I treated the issues as more important than the relationship. I need you to forgive me. I'm telling you, there's a lot of healing that can come from that. There's an awful lot of stuff that can be lifted from you, but I fear that there are a lot of people in the church, a lot, certainly a lot of people out in that wider culture right now, and they're incredibly angry on the surface because underneath there is a deeply broken heart. And you know what I'm telling you is true. It's time to reconcile. And that's what Paul is saying here. If it's not a direct concern of the scriptures, follow your conscience, respect other people, hold the relationship with your brothers and sisters as having more value than your disagreement. You know why? Because it does have more value than your disagreement. Seek to understand each other. Number two, serve God together. Paul goes on in verse 5, and he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's the overall message. Check your motivation for why you do what you do. What drives you to do this or to abstain from that? The issue here, again, involves Sabbath observance. It involves food laws. Both were contained in the Mosaic Covenant. Both were fulfilled completely in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the church now worships as a result on the first day of the week instead of the last. And some of them are even doing it while there's a pig in the ground. Amen? 
I'm telling you, there's no part of a pig that I don't like. I, I haven't tasted it yet. But then there are other people who are coming into this who say, whoa, wait a minute. I, there's a day before this that I think is still really important, and I just can't really bring myself to eat any of that pig. But you know what? They're still part of the family. They're still part of the family. They must be included. Sometimes it's easy for the strong in a scenario like this to make very light of the convictions of the weak. Sometimes it's really easy for the weak to make harsh judgments about the strong. And to prevent that, Paul asks these questions in these verses. Where's your focus when you're following your own convictions? Look, if you want to have a drink, have a drink. But if you're doing it so you can post it on social media and tag all the people so that you can flaunt your freedom, you might want to check your motives. If you want to abstain, abstain. But if you want to harshly judge your brother or your sister, you might want to check your motives. When you talk about your opinions or your convictions, that's fine. You should have them. Nobody's arguing for a mushy middle here, but we are asking this question. Is it with a tone that suggests that anybody who disagrees with you is somehow in sin or less spiritual than you? And here's the ultimate antidote to that. Everything you believe, everything you do should be based on a conviction that this is the best way for you to serve the Lord. This is the best way for me to serve the Lord. And this thing, by the way, bears a striking resemblance to something Jesus said in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That goes to motivation, doesn't it? Is, there, is it wrong to practice righteousness? No, no. Scripture endorses it. But your motivation is every bit as important, apparently, as your action. And the more important question when trying to follow personal conviction is this one. Who am I serving when I follow this conviction? Paul's assuming a couple of things here about every single Christian. The first is privilege, that every person is a thinking person. They're cap capable of making decisions. They're capable of serving God, whether or not, in this case, they eat meat offered to idols. And we can apply that across a broad range of ideas. It's how we're dealing with the vaccine question here at Covenant. Listen, I think you need accurate information. I think inaccurate information is deadly. I think information empowers. We're going to keep advocating for that. You're going to see me, if you want to, on a nationwide webinar on Tuesday night as a pastor advocating for the vaccine. At the same time, I don't know everybody's medical condition. I don't know the conversations that they've had with their doctors. And frankly, it's not really in my, any of my business. So we will put the information out there, and then we will mind our business. This is what we do. You say, you mean you're not going to require? No. A medical intervention that requires a substance to be put in someone else's body? No, that's between them and the Lord. Now, does that mean we don't say, hey, let's, let's encourage you to look at this? No, that's not what that means at all. We do encourage it. But you have the privilege. Everybody's a thinking person. Everybody's capable of making their own decisions, serving God, whether or not they choose this thing or the other. Second, though, is responsibility. This is why you give accurate information, right? Each person is responsible before God to think through things clearly and carefully. And at the end of the day, you're asking this question, not, not what do I have a right to do, not, not what are people going to pressure me to do, but what does the Lord want me to do? How, how am I going to be faithful to him? How am I going to serve? And at the end of all of this deliberation is the question of how we come together to serve God 
together. David Lee was the executive director of the, the network of churches that I came to serve when we first moved to Maryland in 2005. I learned a lot from David before his retirement in 2012. But, but one of the things that I'll never forget was, a, was this lesson. He said, Joel, the, the number one way, it's not the only way, but the number one way to keep people in the body of Christ from fighting unnecessary fights and dividing over things that don't matter and getting off mission. You know what it is? Get them on mission together. Get them working together. And I got to tell you, we got some work around here that needs to be done. We've got an 11 o'clock covenant kids that's not happening right now. You know who's missing? Probably you. We've got other areas where we need help. We've got food distribution that happens the last two Tuesday nights of the month. We have a Vietnam uh, engagement that's, that's opening back up. And no, you don't have to get on a plane. There's all kinds of ways that you could be of support to that. One America West Virginia continues to work with all of our partners in the area to combat an opioid crisis that has gotten exponentially worse in the middle of this pandemic. There's all kinds of things we can do. And at the end of the day, brother, sister, here's your choice. You can either get to work in the Lord's house. You can either divide the house or you can go to work in the house that's all you that that's your choice serve God together number three live under his lordship verse seven for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself for if we live we live to the Lord and if we die we die to the Lord so then whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He's just reminding us here that this is the, this is the closed-handed thing. Like this is, this is the mother load of closed-handed truths. Jesus Christ is from the dead. If he's not, then our faith is in vain. And what he's telling us here is that our central purpose, the central purpose of that plank is that Jesus might be Lord over everything. And, and when we fully grasp this, then doing all the other things Paul talks about here, they become easier. We need to ask ourselves, when we find ourselves with different opinions about, again, an open-handed issue, am I doing what I'm doing for myself? Am I do or am I truly doing this because I believe it's what the Lord wants? Ask yourself why this is important. Why is it important? And then ultimately, and number four, prepare for judgment day. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so the argument basically comes down to this. There's a reason that we don't have time or the bandwidth to judge each other on non-essential issues. It's because ultimately we're all going to answer to God. And it's going to happen at something called the judgment seat. And there's a couple of different ways that the New Testament uh, would, would employ this particular word. One is exactly what you're thinking. If you've ever had a traffic violation, you went to court or you know, who knows, maybe something worse. And you stand there and there's a bench and there's a chair. And who sits in that chair? There's a guy or a gal with a black robe. And they're judging. That's the judgment seat. But another way this term gets used in the New Testament and in other Greek literature outside that was used at roughly the same time uh, is a judge in the athletic games. So think less about the guy in the black robe behind the bench, more about the guy in the stripes who's judging whether or not there was an offsides jump over the line of scrimmage. Or maybe even more accurately, someone in a really close race who has to stand at the finish line and judge who the winner is. Here's what Paul is saying. At the end of the age, 
judgment day is coming. And what's going to matter on that day are not so many of the things that we're tempted to divide the house over and just hate each other about. What's going to matter is whether or not you have a relationship to Jesus Christ. Because I'm telling you, if you're an unbeliever, that day will be like a courtroom bench, only unlike what you have privilege of having in the United States. There will be no loopholes in the law. There will be no attorney that pleads your case. There will be no plea bargaining. There will be no technicalities. Everything about your life will be laid bare before God, and there will be no escaping his wrath. For the unbeliever, that's the judgment seat. For the believer, what's that seat look like? A lot less like what I've just described and a lot more like victory lane at a NASCAR race. That's what it looks like. That's what's in your future and mine if you belong to Jesus. And Paul reminds us of that fate so we'll prepare for that moment and be found faithful. And he says, you're not going to be prepared for that day if getting into your brother's or sister's business causes you to neglect serving and living for God. Don't judge your brother. Instead, get ready to be judged by the Lord. There's a, a parable I've told here before about a man who was shipwrecked, and after many years, he was rescued. And the rescuers were surprised to find three huts sitting right next to each other. He identified the first one very quickly as his home. And they said, okay. They said, what, what about that one on the other side over there? And he goes, well, that's my church. So they were puzzled by that, and they said, well, what about the one in the middle? And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church. This is who we are. Too often, too often, looking for some way to, to divide the house, looking for some issue that at the end of the day is, it may even be an important one, but it's not worth sacrificing the relationship and the unity of the body. It's certainly not worth uh, depriving ourselves of the lived experience of another. I, I'm going to tell you, so much around the issue of race in this country could be solved by the church if we would learn from each other's lived experience. So much of it. But what do we do? We go to our respective echo chambers and we do our thing. Paul's calling us to something higher here. Something higher. Somebody isn't listening to Paul's words that needs to. And here, Paul's words are God's words. Let me just remind you of that. The stuff that sometimes we're so tempted to divide the house over, break up friendships over, you know, needle into one another over, getting into one another's business, are not over something that is very clearly the Word of God. But I'm going to tell you, when you're reading Paul's words, you are reading God's words, and it may be time to repent. Don't compromise your own convictions, but don't bash your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be convinced in your own mind. Focus on following Jesus to the best of your ability. Agree to disagree on secondary matters. Work together to make the name of Jesus known. And again, we got plenty of ways to do that around here. About a month from now, we're going to have a commitment Sunday where I'm going to talk about all those ways that you can be involved as we begin to sort of come back to life here uh, in the wake of the end of the pandemic. But today, maybe... Maybe the biggest thing and the most important thing you could do is just to come to him. Come to him. Uh, you know, we're, we're a week now into our month of prayer and fasting. And I'm going to tell you what I've been praying for and what I've been fasting over is the souls of men and women who don't know Jesus. We, we, we're on a well around here. We don't have a water bill. But if we did, I would pray for it to become unpayable because we're filling this tank up so often. 
That's what I want to see. I want to see people find Christ. I want to see them find the hope in Christ. They will not find him if their first encounter with the body of Christ is a divided people who act just like the world. And you know what? You won't find healing that way either. By allowing that wound to just sit there, by letting it fester, by allowing it to do whatever, whatever it's doing right now. You need to make Jesus known in your behavior. And some of you need to find new life in Jesus Christ. You can find it today. You can find it today if you'll come to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for just some simple nuts and bolts things that we are taught. Thank you for a word that reminds us of what's important, that turns us toward each other rather than away from each other, that encourages us, Father, not to leave wounds open and gaping and unhealed, but Lord, to, to through the, the salve of repentance and faith, uh, to find restoration and reconciliation. I pray that happens today. And I pray most of all for those who aren't yet reconciled to you. May they come and they, may they find you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.